Good morning, and thank you all for coming. So let's go ahead and get started. We have no disclosure. Um, here are our learning objectives. Review the need for clinical decision tool regarding opioid prescribing for sickle cell patients. We're going to define the process used to develop our clinical decision tool. We're going to identify the clinical pathways of this decision tool. Um, and then, sorry about all my noise. And evaluate the successes and failures. This is a picture of my team. Like they said, we're from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences where I'm the program coordinator for an adult sickle cell program. I have a, roughly 250 to 300 patients that I take care of. Um, a really cool feature of my program is they transfer from our um, pediatric program uh, between 18 and 21 to me. In the back, you'll see my medical director, Dr. Issam McCool, my nurse, um, Stella is on the right, and then my pharmacist, um, Lindsay Dayer, and then my social worker. We work, also work very closely with anesthesia pain and palliative care. <clears throat> Alrighty, on to the algorithm. So the purpose of this algorithm, and we'll kind of give you a little background. Our multidisciplinary team that was featured before, we uh, got together with an expert panel to come up with a, a way to kind of standardize how we prescribe opioids. Um, we get lots of questions about how to manage adult sickle cell patients. So we actually just wanted to put down on paper what we do in practice. And we were given a 14 month internal grant to fund this project. Uh, here's a few clinical practice significance. So there is limited research in the management of chronic pain and sickle cell disease, not only for chronic pain, but just in the adult world for sickle cell disease, because prior to 20 years ago, this was considered to be a disease of childhood. So many of them did not make it into adulthood, so the research still remains limited. We want to improve the quality of life of our sickle cell patients. Um, in clinic, I always tell them I want them to live their best life, whatever that looks like for them. We want to always maximize our non-opioid management, um, including our adjuvants and our non-farm management, which is real important with the um, opioid crackdown. And then we want to improve mortality by decreasing their healthcare utilization. Statistically, the more times these patients visit healthcare, the um, increase of their, or it, sorry, it shortens their life expectancy. So I keep them out of the hospital as much as possible. This is our work group, our expert panel. You can just look at them there. We added a pediatric hematologist to our regular team, um, an additional pharmacist, and a statistician. Alrighty, I always like to tell a little bit about sickle cell disease when I present. So sickle cell disease is a group of inherited red blood cells in which your um, hemoglobin is distorted, and it looks like a sickle, which is an old farmer's tool, or a crescent moon. Hemoglobin S, which um, gives the patient sickle cell disease. So I told you it was shaped like a crescent moon or sickle form. It's uh, also important to know that it's rigid and sticky, unlike your regular red blood cell. So the regular red blood cell is shiny, it's shaped like a donut, and it's able to expand, contract, and get through the vessels very easily. But with that rigid, sticky, and the rigid, sticky, and the crescent moon shape of the sickle hemoglobin makes it uh, transport very hard to the vessels and it blocks oxygen to the um, tissues and organs which can result in damage and pain. 
also these crescent moon shaped or hemoglobin S, <coughs> hemoglobin die sooner, so these patients have chronic anemia. And this is the pathogenesis of sickle cell disease. I'll let you look at that. They're more prone, prone to um, inflammatory stimuli, hemolysis. It's a hypercoagulable state. So worldwide, a question that I always get when um, I tell people I take care of sickle cell disease, they're like, oh, only black people get sickle cell disease, which is not true. So I always like to highlight, um, it's more prominent in Afri African and um, African African descent, but we also have patients from Spanish-speaking Spanish regions, the Mediterranean, Saudi Arabia, and India. <coughs> so the CDC estimates there's about 100,000 people in the United States currently living with sickle cell disease, which makes it an orphan disease, about one in um, every 365 African-American births results in the disease, and about one in every 13 African-American births results in trait. And then um, for Hispanics, it's about one out of every 16,300 births result in sickle cell disease. Here again is the life expectancy. As I told you before, it was previously thought of as a um, disease of childhood, and that's kind of how our clinic was birthed because these patients had nowhere to go and they were living longer. Um, typically their premature death is related to an uh, acute disease-related complication of sickle cell. And I've included the median survival rates. So hemoglobin SS is viewed as the most severe type of the disease. There are multiple types. Sickle cell disease um, is an umbrella term. And you'll see their life expectancy is about 42 to 48. My oldest SS patient, um, I think she's in her 50s and living her best life. And then for SC disease, it's considered to be a milder form of the disease. And their life expectancy is from 60 to 68. And my oldest patient is approaching 70 and living well with the disease. Vaso-occlusive crisis. I feel like when I mention sickle cell disease, I get two things. Um, African-Americans are affected and it's painful. So let's get to that painful part. Um, what is a vaso-occlusive crisis? First of all, pain and vaso-occlusive crisis are the hallmark symptoms of sickle cell disease. Probably why it's most well known. You can see there that we have the um, donut shape, normal red blood cells, and then the sickled that are clustered and they're not moving anywhere and they're not allowing your healthy red blood cells to get oxygen to the places that it needs to go, which results in ischemic injury and um, pain and can eventually result in death of the organ or tissue. Alrighty, case number one. <clears throat> so we're going to include some cases on kind of why we decided to do this algorithm and why it was important to us. Um, and before we get into the first case, part of what really made us want to do this algorithm, we had a local, there were a handful of local providers that take care of sickle cell patients because our adult clinic is relatively new. Um, one of those providers was abruptly removed from his practice and we inherited about 50 of his patients and we quickly realized that no one in his group was willing to take over those patients because of the plans he had them on. Um, no one is willing to sign up for that. So we were like thinking it would be great to have some sort of tool to help these clinicians that don't necessarily do sickle cell all the time. Um, because 
patients, you know, chronic pain patients can be very difficult and kind of taking some of the question out of it. Our clinic also, while we have a dedicated hematologist as our medical director, we have six that rotate through clinic. So our clinic at times struggles to all stay on the same page. So we thought this would be a good way to help our own clinic all stay united and be on the same page. So the first case, the anxiety made me do it. Uh, she's a 32-year-old African-American female. She comes to clinic for the very first time after being with this provider for over 10 years. Um, her medical history, well, she presented to clinic that day with chest pain um, times one week, sleep disturbances. She was seen in the ER prior to that visit and had an EKG, a chest X-ray, and a CT scan. Uh, they were all normal. She was convinced she was having a heart attack, but everything was normal. Um, despite this, she continued to complain of chest heaviness, some dizziness with exertion. Um, her pain was worse. She did have two young children that she was really struggling to take care of uh, because she couldn't get out of bed. So frequent awakening with inability to return to sleep that had been going on for months, um, if not years. She couldn't really give a good time frame. So. The pain reported to the previous provider continued to escalate opiates. So she did have SS disease. Her surgical history included a splenectomy and a cholecystectomy. Um, again, she's, she was married, but not living with her husband. She was a mother of two children and living with her mother. She's been on disability her entire life. Um, she was trained as a cosmetologist, but had never worked. So this was her pain regimen. <clears throat> so when she came to us, this is what she was on. And these prescriptions were filled every three to four weeks. So we're looking at about 164 MMEs per day. She was on three short-acting short medications. And we said, oh no. <laughs> and I use the CDC opioid conversions. I just included that chart because our um, PDMP, these are the ones that they use to calculate um, the daily MMEs. So on physical exam, she was unremarkable. And part of our interdisciplinary clinic, all new patients get a full workup by me, um, which is very different for the patients we inherited from this <coughs> provider. They were not used to the interdisciplinary clinic. They asked me probably 15 times, why do I have to meet with you? Why are you asking this? Um, but once I did her history, She'd been having chest pain. Um, she was had chest heaviness constantly, all the time, and had for months. Um, she felt overwhelmed. She was unable to get out of bed on a daily basis. She was tearful. She reported a lack of energy. She had been isolating herself for years. Um, and part of why she lived with her mother was she said her husband just couldn't handle her, could not handle the care she required. Um, so she had been to the ER for a workup, so we knew she wasn't having an actual heart attack um, because I like to tell my social work students, you may think it's anxiety, but you always have to rule out the medical first. That had been done, so it was safe to say she was having a panic attack. Um, and I thought she was going to come unglued when I told her that, but um, we talked about counseling. I mean, I bet this patient was in our clinic for almost three hours. Um, I normally, when I say I don't allow, I don't allow my providers to prescribe benzos. 
um, because I have found with patients just in my career, once we start, it's impossible to get them off and it's impossible to get them to the counseling because the benzos are extremely effective at removing the anxiety. So why do I need to go to counseling to do the work? Counseling's hard, it takes time, it's painful. Um, but this one time I was like, I think we should give her a few, let her get some sleep because she hasn't had any um, productive sleep in a long time. We know lack of sleep makes anxiety worse. Um, so we gave her a few, told her to go home, take one, go to bed. Um, so we also told her to go to the ER if things got worse. But she was going to come back to clinic and see us in two weeks. Um, that's another benefit to our clinic. We can have really close follow-up for these patients. So. <clears throat> so for our sickle cell related pain, it's the practice of our clinic that we only give one short-acting opioid. Um, I'm not sure in this case if we, I can't remember if we allow her to choose because a lot of times we do. Um, if they come in on multiple, which one is best for you? Uh, but you can see we uh, discontinued the hydrocodone and the oxycodone, so she stayed with the hydromorphone 4 milligrams. And we started her on methadone based on her report on how she was taking it. So it was methadone 5 milligrams QHS. I love methadone. So we took our MMEs down from 164 to 84 in that first visit. Um, Follow-up, she was started on the SSRI, paroxetine 20 milligrams. Um, by the time I saw her, she had gone to her primary care doctor and it was rotated to another SSRI, which was not a big deal. She did not comply with counseling. Um, she never started the methadone, which is something that we have often. They research it, they think it's for drug abuse, so they're not interested, um, which was also fine. She didn't feel the medicine um, and managed to stay out of the hospital. She had no ED utilization, no hospital admissions without the methadone. Um, and she was taking hydromorphone four milligrams, 120 a month. Uh, the other thing I wanna say, we, I don't wanna say we have slacked off, but I quit harassing her as much about the counseling initially because she felt so much better just in that decrease on MME, MME a day. Um, I told her it was always there. I see my patients every single time they come to clinic. Um, she felt so much better. I think she was just so overly sedated that she couldn't get out of bed. So when we reduced her pain medicine, she was taking care of her kids. She was getting up. She was talking about going back to work. Um, I mean, she came back in two weeks a completely different person. It was really kind of amazing. She's now working and living with her husband again. The husband would tell her she was crazy. Um, we've gone to the ER, we've gone to the hospital, you've had all these tests and they were negative. There's nothing wrong with you. But they are back under the same roof. And she's taking care of her kids and working. Mm -hmm. so, case number two, pain-free and proud to be. Uh, this Lovely lady is 40 years old. She, same thing, presented to our clinic to establish care after following with this local provider for several years. Um, complained of daily sickle cell re related pain that varied in location, duration, and quality. Today's pain she reported as low back pain and describes as diffuse, dull, achy, and constant with aggravating, exacerbating factors denied. So. Um, she had adequate pain control reported on her current regimen. She was on an excessive amount of MMEs, which we'll show you next. But um, she told me that her hematologist that was managing her pain previously had become more of a PCP, and you can see he was managing her menstrual cramps and some tooth pain for a wisdom, some wisdom teeth that need to be removed, but she didn't have the money to afford it. 
and that had been going on for two or three years. She's had a cholecystectomy. Um, she's unemployed, received SSDI, which she had done her whole life. Met, she received Medicare and Medicaid. She lived independently, <coughs> unmarried, and no children. And this is her, um, the opioid she came to me on. So she took about 655 MMEs per day. Is we what didn't put this on here, but she is an SC patient, which is considered a more mild type and had no bone complications, no hip replacement, knee replacement, no things we typically see with an SC patient, um, especially for that age. <clears throat> Since she was allotted about 655 MMEs per day, she reported take about, taking about 679 to 772 MMEs a day. Um, other things she was taking, my most concerning was that morphine sulfate ER, she was taking 100 milligrams at Q6 hours. Right. <laughs> I mean, I got her PMP the day before clinic. I don't know why I pulled it. It was a miracle. And I was like sounding the alarm, gathering the people. Oh, how can we make this right? Mm -hmm. So that's her reported daily use. So. Her, her uh, physical exam was unremarkable. So. And of course, she got to see me. Um, with me, she was extremely guarded. She denied every single symptom of depression and anxiety, which when someone denies every single one, I don't believe <coughs> them because everybody feels down sometimes. Everybody feels overwhelmed sometimes, especially if you have chronic pain. That's just part of it. Um, she was extremely frustrated about the change in the provider. Um, so honestly, that was kind of the focus of our visit was we know you had no control. This was not your choice, but you're here now. How do we move forward together? So here's her plan. We actually allow her to choose which short acting she want, wanted. Um, so she chose the oxycodone 10 milligrams every four hours and we only gave her enough for two per day and we put her on weekly prescriptions. We took that morphine extended release down to three times a day. So we started the wean and then we started her on methadone with the hopes was to rotate her to methadone and oxycodone. Yes. This was her first, that was her initial visit. <coughs> Correct. And then um, I saw her every week for, I can't even count how many weeks, but she was starting to see me. She was like, oh, I have to see you again. I'm like, mm -hmm. yes. And what I'll say is uh, palliative care, our medical director came in and made this plan for us. And we've learned a long time ago, our patients oftentimes are not gonna be happy no matter what we do for the wean, so we're gonna do the wean that's best for them. Um, because if we're gonna make them happy, we're gonna continue the plan they're on. Right. So we're so, okay with that. <coughs> that was a good question about the wean. Mm -hmm. um, when we compared what was available to her and what she said she was taking, there were some inconsistencies with that story. So we had some concerns for some aberrant behaviors there. She had no symptoms of withdrawal because she was not taking the medicine. So I saw her weekly. Um, we even made follow-up phone calls. And we're fortunate that I have a 24-hour call center that takes patient calls and they're uh, triaged by a nurse. She had zero withdrawal symptoms.
Right. Right, and no disease-related complications. As we were saying in our clinic, we were concerned they were going to the community. Right. Correct. Correct. And um, she had been fueled by a provider for ten years, and this is what she had been getting. Um, a few slides ago, I showed how many pills she had allotted to her daily. Because I always like to look at that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he did nine tablets, 12 tablets. So she reported taking nine to 12 tablets of hydromorphone, four milligram a day, and then nine to 12 tablets of Percocet per day. So I mean, that would be how many? Every hour? Right. A lot. It's and a this patient has never worked. Um, and because sickle cell 20 years ago, they didn't live as long, it was kind of an automatic qualifier for disability. It's not now. Um, but having never worked, now that we have significantly reduced the number of pills, she's now working, taking care of children after school and on the weekends. Um, which I thought was interesting because she says she hates children. So that's a perfect. So I started her on some ibuprofen, 800 milligrams. There's a known inflammatory component of sickle cell disease that I like to medicate with ibuprofen. Started her on some duloxetine, 60 milligrams for musculoskeletal pain. And then again, oxycodone, 10 milligrams. We only made it where she had two available to her per day. And then methadone um, was the end result after multiple weeks, 10 milligrams BID. Um, she did well over the course, never had withdrawals, was never seen. Also something else that we look at is healthcare utilization. She was never seen in a healthcare facility during this wean. So, which and is- since then has had one ER visit. Right. And it was for illness. Like 16, 16 months, one visit. So we're, we had, still have concerns that it was going to the community. Musculoskeletal pain. I couldn't hear you. Nothing else? We did start some Cymbalta. Uh, we like to maximize our adjuvant therapies. Mm -hmm. So that was a palliative care recommendation as well. Methadone? So she did, she was taking a long acting medicine, which was excessive the morphine 100 milligrams q6 hours we really like methadone because we think long term in sickle cell patients and the longer they live they'll require a higher dose and it allows us to maximize our dose plus it's cheap oh and it's dirt cheap we have our medicaid our population is about 80 to 90 percent medicaid these were our goals. Um, we wanted the prescribing to be consistent with the CDC recommendations. We wanted to increase our patients' quality of life um, and decrease mortality um, because we always have concerns that sickle cell patients <coughs> die and they blame sickle cell disease, but is it? Um, we never really know. And of course, healthcare consumer cost savings. Uh, to go to the ER, one visit is thousands of dollars. And so if we can avoid that, that's what we want to do. Not only does it help 
our healthcare costs. It improves their quality of life because they're not miserable and sitting in the cold ER for 10 hours. Right. So, yeah, coming up with this algorithm, you imagine we had a lot of meetings with our panel. Um, so we just thought this was funny. Lots and lots of meetings. Yeah. So we ran through the algorithm with a few patients, provided it to a few providers so they could try it out. Um, change after change after change after change. I think the hardest part for us to develop the algorithm was putting down on paper what we actually did in practice. Right? It seems real straightforward. It's not. So again, we met, so I almost pulled my hair out. I don't have much hair. And I think Colin threatened to quit about 15 times during this process. Um, but we, again, ran through more patients. We ran through some pediatric patients. We ran through adult patients. Uh, made lots of changes. Uh, but after multiple meetings, multiple copies, we ended up with six different versions uh, before we ended up with our final one, which is what it, this <coughs> looks like. Here is our algorithm. I'm going to go over the, I don't know if you can tell that the boxes are gray. Those are the ones that I'll go over in detail. Um, the important parts. So we evaluate for complication. And we're doing this with every patient that we see because pain is very important. So, and it's something we hear about all the time. Evaluate for uncontrolled depression and or, and or anxiety. Make sure they're on therapeutic hydroxyurea dosing. Maximizing non-opioid interventions. And then um, what do you do when you've done all these things and the patient clearly has chronic pain? So evaluating for complications of vaso-occlusive crisis. These are common sickle cell related complications. I have acute chest syndrome in red because it can result in death and they rapidly decline. It's where they have emboli in their lungs and they'll be okay and then not okay. And it's very sad. I also uh, love to highlight when you think of complications, uh, I would say about 80 to 90% of these patients are going to present to your ER for pain. They're going to say it's a pain crisis, but they could be having a life-threatening illness, so you always want to evaluate. I mean, I had one patient, she showed up, was having chest pain. I know it's my sickle cell, I know it's my sickle cell. It was a PE, she had acute chest, was intubated and sedated. So. Always, always, always look for those. And this part of our tool, we wanted to have a standardized way to assess for depression and anxiety outside of just my opinion. Um, so our, we have it built into our EPIC um, to do the PHQ-2, which then triggers to the 9 if needed, um, and then, of course, my clinical assessment. But we have something standard as well. So hydroxyurea was the first drug approved for sickle cell disease in 1998. To date, there is only three hydroxyurea. Elglutamine. Um, Elglutamine and then veloxator, which was approved like in the last month. Um, and what it does is it increases the fetal hemoglobin. So for a lack of better terms, your hemoglobin S or your sickle hemoglobin is your bad hemoglobin. Hemoglobin F is your good hemoglobin, and it protects the body from making S. So more fetal, more fetal hemoglobin equals less complications is the theory. Also, I have you know, um, up until about the age of nine months, children preserve their fetal hemoglobin, and most of the time they don't have a crisis until then because of that fetal hemoglobin. So the indication for prescribing it is three or greater sickle cell related moderate to severe pain crisis in a 12-month period, and that's for adults. For pediatrics, 
we're putting the um, most severe type of disease on it at nine months. Before you get started, get you a CBC, a BMP, LST, and hemoglobin F, if possible, which is your electrophoresis, because you want to see that hemoglobin F improves. Um, CBC, we're looking at the MCV to see if it moves. Patients that are compliant have a, um, MCV a lot of the times over 100. So you start at 15 mg per kg up to 35 mg per kg. You can adjust it about every eight weeks. And the goal is mild myelosuppression of 2,000 to 4,000. Renal dosing is 5 to 10 mg per kg. And these are just the monitoring parameters. Um, toxicity is absolutely possible with hydroxyurea. One feature I like about hydroxyurea, even if they do become toxic, there's a plan to restart the medication. So you stop the hydroxyurea immediately, um, do CBCs weekly. And typically these symptoms resolve. I've had a few patients that have dropped their platelets, dropped their H&H. &H. And then when it's time to restart, you just start them at five mgs per kg lower. And I do frequent CBCs on them. Um, the non-opioid interventions. Um, so obviously we want to do everything we can that's not an opiate, right? Um, so we encourage massage, hydration, meditation, direct heat application. Um, nurses on the floor get so annoyed with sickle cell patients because they want the heat packs. And I'm like, bring them five. Those heat packs that you pop, and they stay warm for less than an hour. Like, save yourself the time. Um, we also I've had hospitals that I wanted to physically push down because they were mad because the patient was taking a hot shower. But heat really does help the sickle cell patient. Um, we want them to increase their oral hydration because uh, one of the or one of the things about sickle cells they can't concentrate their urine, so they're very susceptible to being dehydrated. So the first time they start having pain, increase your fluids. Um, we of course do NSAIDs, we do SNRIs, uh, gabapentin. We do anything we can, and what we tell the patient is we have to attack the pain from all sides. And even doing that, this is an unpredictable disease. You're still going to have pain and kind of having some acceptance of that. Sorry that those flipped. Yeah, I'm in we do. I had issues with that. Uh, but persistent chronic pain in sickle cell, obviously the pathology is not really understood. But again, this is a relatively new thing in the adult world, really the last 10 or 15 years. Um, so re more and more research is being done, but we do know that there's chronic tissue damage. Um, we see wounds and leg ulcers in our adult patients from this tissue damage. Um, the older they are, the more likely they are to report, report pain that's nerve related. Um, and so it's just something we have to watch and keep an eye on. These are our collaborators that helped us with our expert panel. Um, Jacob Painter, the top one listed, he took everything that was in our heads and put it on that wonderful sheet and made it flow. Um. Also, um, when it comes to chronic pain, once we've gone through the algorithm and we decide, okay, they have no complication, they have no uncontrolled um, depression and anxiety, their hydroxyurea is maximized, they're doing their non-farm. Now the question is, um, do we need to increase their opioids? 
or do we need to decrease their opioids? And we've had several patients that we've been able to decrease and it hasn't affected their healthcare utilization. Because again, I want to keep them out of the hospital, not to shorten their life expectancy. Or their pain. I mean, a lot of patients are taking less medicine than they have taken for years because no one just has addressed it. No one has said, have we tried using less? They feel better, they're sleeping better, they're more active with their kids. Um, I mean, it's been very surprising. And we're surprised having these conversations with patients, how many of them had medicine in their cabinet that they were storing because they were afraid there would be a day they wouldn't have any. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not what we want. You can get more if you run out, but don't just hoard it. So these are our references. Do we have any other questions? Right, so we have an um, infusion center, which we can kind of use like an ER. And in the infusion center, patients get IV fluids, they get IV NSAIDs, we love Toradol. And then we give them two doses of opioids. What we do with the opioids is the first dose is at least one and a half to two times as much as they can take orally, right? And then the second dose is half of that. And typically these patients leave this infusion center and don't have to visit the ER. And it's not a walk-in, but they can give us a call. We give them an appointment there and there about two hours. Correct. Mm -hmm. Pain that's not relieved by their home regimen. It depends on the patient, but my patients are adults, so they, a lot of them have itching with morphine, so we use lots of Dilaudid. Euphoria. Uh huh. So, we only give oral Benadryl and oral promethazine. Right? And that was a fight for about 13 months on my service because they wanted it IV. They had gotten a cocktail forever. But once we set those um, boundaries, they don't even ask anymore. And, and it's part of the adult sickle cell guidelines. Um, from the NIH that you give oral Benadryl for sickle cell patients. So you can blame the guidelines for that. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. yes. But patients will say, well, I've always gotten it, and say, well, this is the safest, and this is what the national guidelines say. Kind of put some ump behind what you're saying. And they're going to be just a percentage of sickle cell patients that are going to frequent your ER, unfortunately, because I have some like that. They just won't stay out. Um, I have concerns that they have uncontrolled mental health that they're managing because even if they have uncontrolled depression and anxiety, they are truly having pain. But this is my thing. Is it pain or is it pain? Right? They miss follow-ups. I mean, my ER wants me to see them every three days. And giving them an outpatient script in the ER is not going to keep them from coming back to the ER in three to five days. Um, if you are treating pain, but if you're treating this, <clears throat> I mean, course. this is a struggle that I see in my practice all the time. That's why I have the pain or pain. So once you 
I think the best part about my clinic is I have an interdisciplinary team. I can see them frequently. Now we have had patients and we've gotten on board and gotten them better, but they have to be able to come to the follow-ups and things of that nature. And sometimes our well-meaning ER will want to start a patient on long-acting. Please don't ever do that without the buy-in of the long of the clinic. Um, because some of those patients are not safe to have that for various reasons. Um, and so they'll come in after having gotten a script from the ER and it's like, well, we're, you know, who's going to continue that? Who's going to continue writing for that? Um, What was the long-term management with buprenorphine? <clears throat> That's something we actually don't use in our practice. Again, Medicaid. Um, and back to the ER physician, um, you said they have really close follow-up. So these cases that we presented took lots of time and it was serial visits. And it kind of depends on what happens in, those, in their follow-up. Right, all follow-up is not created equal. And I wish my, sometimes my clinic was a runny nose clinic where we get them in, get them out, get them in, but it's nothing for me to spend an hour, hour and a half with one of these patients while clinic runs on to get them the care that they need. And unfortunately, a lot of practices don't have that time to invest, nor do they have the team approach. Benefit of the team, we all get a different story a lot of times. And then we put them all together. I think my social worker probably gets the truest story because they look at her as uh, not a decision maker and she can't prescribe medicine. Mm -hmm. So they give the deets to her because they don't feel like she's a threat, but I am. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I would say that varies from patient to patient. And uh, my patients, I mean, I have patients in their 20s, 30s, 40s, if they've had bad disease, they're going to be able to come into your ER and tell you what works for them and what does not work. Unfortunately, sometimes that's misinterpreted as drug seeking. But a lot of times it's just, I've been doing this a long time and I work in an academic institution. Residents are scared of the doses a lot of times. So they underdose these patients and then call me and say, well, they, they're continuing to hurt, but you've given them less medicine than they take at home. So, um, I mean, as an ER physician, you probably don't get to know them like I get to know them. And I'm embedded within the hospital, so I'm a phone call away, and my providers can normally call me. ER providers, orthopedics, and I can just... You can. My, my furthest call has been from Alaska uh -huh. to Arkansas, so feel free. one 855 is my number. S-I-C-C-E-L-L. Yeah. And we struggle in our ER too. When you're in the ER, you have 10 patients, you have a lot going on. Some of your patients are very, very sick. So we know you can't spend your time digging in the chart reading, um, but kind of figuring out, because we had one patient who was really dying. She had advanced disease. We were having the hospice talks with her. Life is short. Her pain was worse. If she stayed out of the hospital more than three days, that was successful. 
Um, and so she would come to the ER and some of the attendings would know her and, oh, let's get her back because we know she's dying, she's sick. And then others would be like, why are you here again? Um, and so that's hard in that setting to really get to know them. But if you can work with whoever their provider is to figure out, you know, is it something else going on? Is it what should I be doing? Um, the five years we've been doing this, we've no, our patients are not addicts. We have had one patient who was an addict to IV Dilaudid. Um, he could go about 48 hours without it. Um, he was going to hospitals all over the state to get it, including the Heart Hospital, which apparently is the best ER if you're ever in Little Rock. They'll get you in and out really fast. Um, but addiction is not an issue for these patients across the board. The stigma for these patients is there, but it's not real. Our addiction rates are consistent with the national average. However, it has been documented over and over. The stigma is very great for this population as it pertains to, um, and I don't know if your hematologists work inside of your facility, but the benefit of me being inside of this facility is my last clinic note always has ER recommendations on it. They are admitted to a hospitalist service inpatient, but it's a Hemoc hospitalist service. So I know the provider. But uh -huh. Well, it depends on the patient for a PCA. Some of them get fixated on that box and that clicker, so they don't qualify. But some of them, we do PCAs. I know there are some facilities that like my pediatric facility, as soon as they come in, everybody gets a PCA, but that's not the, that is not our standard. Now we have even used a PCA for like the, to replace nurse delivery doses and found that it's helpful. So Q2 hours or Q3 hours, they could hit the button. It was on their own terms. Mm -hmm. But we just vary in what we do for the patients. It's very individualized. Yeah. Some patients, if you put them on a PCA, you, it's forever getting them off of it. Um, We've had some bad, bad PCA addictions. I mean, it's just the clicker. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah, it's the control. Any more questions? Thank you all for coming.